Our Father in heaven, on behalf of those here this morning, I approach you, Father, in, in humbleness of heart and in a sincere desire to hear from you and to ask your blessing on this fellowship. Father, we seek your strength, all of us, and I pray that your strength would be among us by your spirit and through your word. We have no strength of our own, Father. We give nothing to the work you provide and, and require of us. We come as servants, Father. Thank you for your strength in us. Thank you, Father, for the strength of your word. Thank you for the faithfulness, the ever-present work of your spirit in us. Thank you, Father, that we have been called among all men and women to be your ambassadors here in Austin. It's a privilege, Father. It's a glory to to us and an opportunity for us. It is something we cannot take lightly, Father. We thank you that you've given it to us and that you've called us in this way. And now we stand before you, Father, helpless to accomplish the thing you've asked us to do. And yet, because you've called us, Father, you will equip us. You say in your word, Father, that those you call, you will bring to the proper end, to a glorified existence in your presence. If we can be sure of that, we can be sure, Father, that you will also carry us in the meantime through the work you've appointed in this life. So, Father, as we look into your word this morning for the truths that will sustain us and strengthen us and guide us, we rely on your spirit to show us these things. By our mind and by our own intellect, we are helpless in the face of the awesome and wisdom and depths of your word. But as you teach them, Father, by your spirit, you can make all things known. We pray that that would be what we would find this morning, Father, those things that you would make known to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chapter 26. Actually, today would be the start of 27, more or less, but there were two verses at the end of 26 that I left intentionally. They become a bridge, a transition for us out of one chapter into the next as we study onward in the life of Isaac and his two sons. But it's probably helpful at this moment to take a quick review of chapter 26 as a whole. Where did it leave us as we came to the end of it? We learned about Isaac the man. It's the one chapter in Scripture that speaks about him. And we learned a couple of things. We learned he's a man of faults, but he's also a man in covenant with the living God. Because of that relationship, through that covenant, God is going to continue to bless Isaac and to ensure that God's plan will be accomplished through Isaac, despite his faults, despite his sin. Not to excuse his sin, but because God's plan will be accomplished through the lives of men, sin or otherwise. Now, having said that, we also learned Isaac is a man who hears God and obeys God and waits patiently for those blessings and for the strength that God brings. This is a man that is fleshed out in front of our eyes in chapter 26. A man of sin, but also a man who knows the living God and responds. Now, there was another side of the story of Isaac, which we're just now coming back into. The one we began actually back in chapter 25. The side of his life that reflects his parenting style. Isaac, the dad, and with him, of course, his wife, Rebecca, the mom. And they are raising two sons, Esau and Jacob. And these two boys, how do we say this? They have issues. And as we've seen already, their issues reflect, at least in part, the way their parents are responding to them. You have Isaac favoring Esau, we learned back in chapter 25, simply because of Esau's ability to bring Isaac the kind of food he likes. 
And Isaac gives every indication by his behavior and his favoritism for Esau that when the day comes, he will intend to transfer his birthright to Esau, which is not, we know, God's intention. Now, Rebecca, for her part, she prefers Jacob. And that's probably a response, at least in part, to her husband's preference for the other child. She's trying to even the score maybe a little bit. But we also know that she's heard from God. She knows God's intentions. She knows God's heart is to bless the younger, that is Jacob. So perhaps part of her favoritism is a reflection of her own obedience to God's word, a desire to see God's intentions honored in this family. Nevertheless, the way she's treating Jacob, the way Isaac is treating Esau, the way the two boys are behaving with one another, this is creating a whole bunch of dysfunction in this family. And it's creating, it's cultivating in these two sons some very bad traits, traits that are now going to play out in the events of chapter 27. Now, it's tempting for us to conclude at this point that both sides are equally at fault. Well, that would be a bit of reading today's culture into the text rather than letting the text read the truth back to us. Because in point of fact here, they are not equally at fault. They're both acting selfishly in different ways, Isaac and Rebecca. They're both being deceptive in their own ways. We'll see more of that as we go further in the text. But the Bible is not silent on the issue of blame. And in the course of this story, as we go further into the story of Isaac and Rebecca and the two boys, we're going to find that the problem traces from the father down, as often is the case in families, and that the dad here shares the bulk of the blame. Let's begin in chapter 26, verse 34, reading the last two verses of that chapter, and we'll move from there as it takes us into chapter 27. 26:34 reads, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Berei the Hittite, and Basamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Well, the end of the chapter introduces us to Esau's wives. And there's a couple of remarkable things about this marriage or marriages that we see here. First and foremost, he takes multiple wives. Esau chooses from the start to engage in polygamy. Multiple marriages have always been outside God's desire, according to Scripture. And the entire testimony of Scripture makes that abundantly clear. There's times when I've heard some try to defend the practice merely on the basis that there is evidence that it was practiced by the patriarchs. But we can dismiss that logic in a moment by remembering that there's sin prevalent in the lives of patriarchs and famous people in the Bible all the way through to the apostles. But never does Scripture suggest that because the men God worked through in ancient times had sin in their life, therefore we should emulate them, including emulating their sin. That's never something Scripture tells us to do. We're not supposed to repeat the mistakes of David and Bathsheba. We're not supposed to repeat the mistakes of Solomon and his multiple wives. We're not supposed to repeat the mistakes of patriarchs that take multiple wives. We're supposed to learn from them and understand them. The practice of taking multiple wives in Scripture is either associated with ungodly, unbelieving, carnal men like Lamech, like Esau, or in the cases of men like Abraham, it's always shown in the context of a sinful decision, a sinful choice, and with it, many negative consequences. Those are the only two ways you will ever see multiple marriages portrayed in Scripture, throughout the Bible, you will see this pattern repeated. And in every case where multiple wives exist, 
trouble follows. And don't read too much into that statement. By the way, Esau's father, Isaac, he never took multiple wives. He's the only patriarch who doesn't of the three. And even his grandfather, Abraham, when he took multiple wives, it was not a desire to immediately begin with multiple families, was it? It was actually a decision born out of frustration for not being able to have a child with his first wife. Abraham and Sarah were trying to solve a problem of childlessness, and that's what led them to choose this other option. And obviously, in his case, taking that step was wrong. First of all, it didn't solve the fundamental problem because in the end, Ishmael was not the child God intended for that family. And then secondly, it creates all kinds of new difficulties for them, which we see play out in his story. There was no good side to it. It was a mistake from front to back. Now, for the first time, though, we see somebody in the line of the patriarchs setting out to take multiple wives for no good reason, for no necessity, except a desire to have them and to do so right from the start. But this would have been the pattern of the day. It's not as though Esau invented this. He was adopting or conforming to the world that he lived in. This is what the unbelieving world in that day often did, take multiple wives. This, my friends, would be more evidence of what we've already seen to tell us Esau is a godless, unbelieving, flesh-driven man. Of the two that Isaac has produced, he is the son who does not know the Lord or care for the things of the Lord or have a faith for God's word. And his actions are betraying that or betraying that. Furthermore, we learn that he has taken not just two wives of any ordinary sort, he's taken Canaanite wives. These are women who came from the peoples who are indigenous to this area that they live in, in Canaan, Hittites specifically. This is, again, proof of his rebellion against God. Do you remember what Abraham did when it was time for Isaac to find a wife? The effort that Abraham put in to find Isaac his wife? He sent his servant back to Ur. And he did so specifically because he said the Lord forbid Abraham to take a wife from among the Canaanites for his son Isaac. Because God had revealed that to Abraham, Abraham obeyed. And he made clear to the servant, under no circumstances will you find a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanite women. Because God had said, if he should do that, the pagan, godless culture of the Canaanites would become a source of corruption in Abraham's family. And that was not to be. They were to be a people called out and separated from among those they sojourned around. Now, Abraham must have communicated that same truth to Isaac in explanation for why the servant had to go across the land to find Isaac's wife. And therefore, it's logical to conclude that that same communication moved down the chain from Isaac to his sons. In fact, go even further back. In Noah's day, in chapter 9 of Genesis, we studied after the flood that because of the incident with Ham and Noah, Noah pronounces a prophetic curse on Canaan, the grandson, which is living out in the lives of the people who now occupy this land. That curse would have been known. That would have carried through the generations as well. People would have remembered that. So with all of that knowledge and all of that insight to tell Abraham and Isaac and now Esau that they were never to marry among that cursed people. Nevertheless, here's Esau, the oldest son, purposely going into the local culture and marrying not one, but two Canaanite women. The women go by names Judith and Basemath. Judith means literally 
praise. And basemath means perfume. Probably cultural names for women. They suggest perhaps these were beautiful women, perhaps even gracious women in their day. But where there is sin, there are consequences. So in verse 35, we're told these women bring grief to Isaac and Rebekah. The word for grief in Hebrew is actually a compound word. It's made up of two Hebrew words sandwiched together. The two words are bitterness and spirit put together. So if you wanted a more literal translation, they brought a spirit of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. Spirit of bitterness. Now, we don't have any more information than this concerning these women and why they were such a source of grief. Do you think the women themselves were the source of the grief? Were they just really nasty daughters-in-law? Perhaps. But you know, their names tend to suggest otherwise, given the way biblical names are meant to reflect the personality of the individual, prophetically. Then it might suggest these women were just ordinarily nice girls. If that's true, then where's the grief from? Where's the bitterness? My interpretation is they were bitter over Esau's choice. The mere fact that he went to these women in the local culture and took two wives on top of it all, that brought bitterness to the family of Isaac. Because by these actions, what Esau was showing them was he was a rebel willing to disobey God, not interested in what God has said, not interested in reflecting that in his behavior. So as a result, his parents experienced the bitterness of watching their eldest son reject and repudiate the call of God and the commandments of God. A lot of Christian families have experienced disappointment of this sort. Even in the best of Christian homes, we've seen the sin nature of the heart becoming stronger and stronger in someone we're raising. And then with the enemy's activity in their life, sooner or later it becomes evident. We can't hide it. We can't ignore it anymore. We have a child who's rebelling, whose life is marked by rebellion, whose constant disregard for the ways of God and the instructions that he offers. And when they do that, when you have that kind of a child in a Christian home, they're not the only ones who suffer. The whole family begins to suffer under those circumstances. In the worst of those situations, though, at some point we may have as a parent no choice but to recognize what Isaac and Rebekah are recognizing right now. They have in their midst a child who is ungodly and unbelieving. Because their heart is reflecting that, is revealing that. Let's be clear in what the Bible teaches. Everybody is born into this world an unbeliever. So there's always some point at which that change must take place if it is to take place. But you know how parents think. We're hoping for the best and we're presuming the best. And it's only after years of observation and, and seeing what they say and watching what they do. And eventually, for some, unfortunately, we have to come to the conclusion, like it or not, that the Lord hasn't touched their heart. And an ungodly person whose life is marked by rebellion is in our midst. And when that happens in a Christian family, it brings a unique kind of pain. Nobody enjoys a rebellious child. That's a universal experience. But as a Christian, when we recognize that that rebellion is telling us something about their heart, the pain goes to a new level because we're now thinking about their eternal future. And even though the manner and the timing of our children's individual rebellion will be different from person to person, the effect on the parent is usually the same, I would imagine, always the same. Grief, bitterness, disappointment, anger, sorrow. And there are no easy answers. The Bible doesn't give parents a guarantee that the Lord is going to bring faith 
to every member of our household. There's no such guarantee in the Scripture. Obviously, Isaac is raising an ungodly child amongst the rest of his family. But nevertheless, the Bible does command parents to raise children in the ways of the Lord. And then as a part of that promise, He will guard their hearts along the way. Most commonly, you've heard this, I'm sure, in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not soon depart from it. There's also the charge that God gave to Abraham. Remember that? Genesis 18.19, he says, I have chosen him, speaking of Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, what did he speak to Abraham? What does he mean when he says, so that it will bring upon Abraham what I have spoken? He spoke to him blessing and a multitude of descendants and a, a means to bless the whole world through his family. And God says, so that Abraham is prepared to carry out those blessings, I want him to be prepared to understand he needs to teach his household about me and my righteousness. That's another of these promises in Scripture. Now, that commandment is not a quid pro quo. It is not a statement that says, if you do this, then you get what you want out of the deal. It's just a commandment in and of itself. Do it, period. And if we do it, there seems to be the hope in these verses and elsewhere that God may bless our obedience through the lives of our children. But raising children in the righteousness of the Lord is the trick because it's a far more demanding requirement than I think most Christians realize. I will meet Christian parents from time to time who lament a rebellious child in their family. And in some cases, you'll hear a line of thought that goes something like this. We did everything right. I don't understand. Now, the first thing that goes through my head is, if what you just said is true, I did everything right. You're the first parent in the history of humanity who could say what you just said. There's no such parent. Secondly, even if that were true, does doing everything right guarantee that someone will come to know the Lord and follow them with all their heart? It just doesn't work that way. There is more to putting in our kids' lives the righteousness of the Lord than merely dragging them to church on Sunday or reading bedtime Bible stories or praying with them before you eat dinner. Those things aren't bad, but those are not the full measure of training up a child in the righteousness of the Lord. It's about how we make our family decisions. It's about how we answer life's toughest questions when they come to us. It's about how we discipline, and it's about how we respond to their sin. Is God's Word the lamp to our feet in our family setting? Is His love and grace evident in us as we treat others and respond to them? When our children come to us for our counsel, do we take them to the Scripture and make the counsel come directly from God's Word, or do we give them the worldly perspective? When our kids talk to us about Dating and sex and money and integrity issues and career issues and peer pressure and culture and politics? Do we give them biblically based answers that reflect our own life? Do they learn biblical principles by watching how we live, looking at the choices we make? Or do they see the Lord's influence in our thinking and in our actions fleeting, there one minute, gone the next? In Deuteronomy 11.18, God makes it clear this is the standard. You shall therefore impress these words of mine upon your heart and your soul. So it starts here. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. And then he goes forward. You shall teach them to your sons, 
talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. It starts here. And from here, it lives out in everyday life in your family. What are these things? The words of mine, he says. This process, folks, is built upon, it's predicated upon your own knowledge of God's word and your willingness to make it the guide for your life, followed by the content of your teaching when you deal with your own kids. So when your kids are caught in a lie, come to the Scripture. When your kids are acting rebellious, come to the Scripture. When your kids are deciding that they can cheat on an exam, go to the Scripture. When your kids are trying to decide why they can't do what other kids do when they date, go to the Scripture. Will they listen every time? Of course not. But they heard the truth. This is the commandment we have to integrate God's Word into our life. My kids were younger when I took them to the first of the Chronicle of Narnia movies. Now, you know those are based on C.S. Lewis's book, so it's a decent storyline to begin with. But if you know that story at all, it embeds throughout that fantasy pictures and images of Christ and of biblical theology. So I'm driving on the way home from the movie, and I'm saying, okay, everybody, what would you think of the movie? Oh, that was good, blah, blah, blah. What do you think it meant when they had the, the vial of the red magic fluid that you had to pour on people to make them come back to life? Or what do you think it meant when the big stone tablet broke in half at the top of the mountain after the lion died? And so we had to dialogue about that. What was the dialogue really getting at? These are images of Christ. These are pictures of Scripture coming out in the story. We'll do the same thing on other storylines, other TV shows or movies that are not at all Christian, but there's some aspect of what they're teaching that either confirms or is in contrast with a biblical notion, and we want to bring that out. Now, you may think we're kind of weird to do that. Maybe we are. Maybe that's what being Christian in this world looks like, being weird in that sense. My point is this. If we were not a family who had some standard of habitually going to Scripture and thinking about the world through the lens of Scripture, those moments would be out of place and contrived, and they would have gone right over our kid's head. But if it's an everyday facet of life, what they're feeling is, this is who we are. We're biblically-minded Christians living in a world that doesn't know Christ. That's the mindset I want them to have. Because if they choose to do the wrong thing next week or next year, one thing I know Embedded in them is the truth of God's word, which will be there to convict them. And by God's grace, through his spirit, then he can use that any way he wants. But if they're absent that, where do they go for their source? What's their lamp on their feet? By the time most Christians know they need this, they're already deep in a hole. And that's always the problem. It's a lot harder to get knowledgeable about where you're supposed to be when you're already in the bad place than it is if you're beginning with your life set on that path. So when the Bible commands parents to raise their children in the fear and the admonishment of the Lord, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about being so godly in your everyday life that your kids simply model on that behavior. Because that's the commandment God gave us. And I think sometimes we find ourselves with that quid pro quo mentality, which goes something like this. I've been trying, God, but it hasn't been working. So now what do I do? I've gone down the road you told me to go down, but I haven't seen the results I want. And so now I'm rethinking the path. Wait a minute. The path is established by God's word. Be who you're supposed to be. Teach what you're supposed to teach. Model what you're supposed to model. And let the chips fall where they may. Because they're in God's hands anyway. I do believe in the promises that God has given in Scripture. And I believe there is real hope for a family that raises godly children or tries to. But there's no guarantee. 
And when one parent is carrying the lion's share of this responsibility without the help of the other parent, especially when that one parent is the mother and not the father, success is far less certain. This needs to begin with the father, and it needs to be driven by the father with parents working together. So what happened in Isaac's home? You don't see two parents working together with the father leading. You have Esau, who's a godless man, who has sold his birthright to his brother. He's gone against God. He's gone against his father's ways. He's living a different lifestyle. He's repudiated the shepherding, wandering lifestyle. He's a source now of bitterness to his parents because he's married two women who are the wrong women. I mean, how many ways can this guy go wrong, right? And look what dad is doing. Dad still favors the man. Dad still would prefer to see him as eldest son and worthy of my attention and praise and worthy of my birthright. Meanwhile, they've got the godly son, Jacob. Imagine how he feels in this relationship. Dad has favored the son who's done everything wrong. Couldn't we spend another Sunday talking about what damage we do in our family when we give all our attention to the child who is rebelling while we ignore the children who are standing with us in the Lord and in the counsel of his word, wondering when do I have the chance for your counsel and attention and, and support? So how should Rebecca and Isaac have responded to this situation? What do you think they should have done? We can sit back now as armchair parents and, and grade them. Well, the first thing you would expect them to do is both of them together acknowledge the reality of what God has done in their family and what he has not done. He has brought faith to Jacob, put him in a position of honor, made him the superior. And even through this mechanism of the birthright being sold, he's actually created the conveyance by which the transfer could happen in that culture. God's lined it up. Simultaneously. For God's own reasons and purposes, he has passed over Esau, left him in his sin, called him to be a man of rebellion. Now, they would still love this man, Esau. They would still welcome him in the family. We're not talking about an all or none kind of distinction here. But Isaac should shield his godly son from the influences of his ungodly son and grant the proper favor as God has directed to that godly son, to Jacob. In fact, Isaac would have been right to send Esau and his godless wives away in the same fashion that Abraham did to Ishmael. Had Isaac been thinking with his head and with his heart rather than with his stomach, that's probably what he would have done. But instead, he makes a bad situation even worse. He is now, in chapter 27, going to play the favorite to this ungodly son while giving his godly son no regard. He's trying to put lipstick on a pig in the form of Esau. And in the process, he is going to undermine his relationship with his wife, with his other son, and as a result, he is going to break up this family. Just look at the beginning of chapter 27 as we see how this plays out. Chapter 27, verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and he said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. 
Isaac says he's reaching the end of his life. The text says he's losing his eyesight. And maybe that's given him some reason to think the life of the body is coming to an end and he's getting a little worried. And so he says, I have to convey my blessing upon you at this point. Esau and Jacob are now 77 years old. Isaac's older half-brother Ishmael has died about 14 years earlier at this point. And remember, they're about 14 years apart in age. So maybe Isaac's sitting there saying to himself, well, my brother died at about this age. I have bad eyesight. You know, maybe I need to start thinking about where my inheritance is going to go. I'm running out of time. But we're going to see here in a minute that he's jumping the gun. In verse 2, there's a very important phrase we need to know, note and understand. When he says, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. In the ancient East, legal practices were conducted largely in an oral tradition. There was very little written text. You didn't have paper. You would write on stone for the most part in this day and age. So written works were very rare. For the most part, legal transactions were done in an oral manner. And just like with written legal transactions today, legal transactions in that day followed a prescribed method. You had to use certain language in order for the legal transaction to be official. So this statement in verse 2 that Isaac uses, these are not just casual words. We find these very same words on ancient tablets from the same era among other people groups. It's a common phrase, and it was always used in conjunction with a last will and testament. So what Isaac just did by using these words in verse 2 is he announced I am prepared to convey my last will and testament, or my inheritance. And with these words, he gives notice that this will be official. And so, when he says this, Isaac's call is to who? Esau, and only Esau. Notice he doesn't call for Jacob, doesn't call for Rebekah. This is a private little thing between him and his oldest son. That's very unusual. In fact, as we look later when we get there and we see Jacob reaching this same moment in his life with his 12 sons, and he's ready to convey his inheritance. When he does that, he calls the whole family to the tent. Everyone is present in the moment that he does this. But not Isaac, not Isaac. He doesn't want the whole family present. He doesn't want Rebecca there. He doesn't want Jacob there. He wants only Esau to be there. And Esau, for his part, He's complicit in the whole conspiracy. He says, oh, I'm here, Dad. And then he gives Esau this request. Now, why is he going about it this way? Well, Esau has sold his birthright. And you can bet Dad knows that. And God has declared that Esau will not receive it. You can bet Isaac knows that too, at least by now. But that doesn't seem to matter to Isaac. It's his desire that it go to Esau. And so he has set up this moment so that he can transfer it in a private, secretive way and sidestep both his wife and the son who has rights to this birthright. Even the timing of this is suspect. Remember I mentioned that he's saying that he's about to die, but wait a minute, let's take a look at the ages here and let's take a look at the history. If you do a careful examination of the genealogies given in this chapter and in later chapters, we can determine that Isaac was 137 years old at this point. Now, remember, dad lived to 175. So even though this sounds old, it's not all that old in those days. We're going to learn that eventually Isaac lives until he's 180. He actually outlives Abraham. So he's going to live 43 years 
after this moment. He's not near death. I mean, he may not be feeling real good, but that doesn't mean he's near death. There's no reason to suspect there's anything in his body that's telling him that he's near death. He's got 43 more years of life at this point. Isaac is conveying this blessing not because he needs to, but because he wants to. And if you want further evidence, I want you to look at what motivated him to give Esau what he's about to give him. He's motivated by a fleshly desire to eat some more of that good food. I mean, it really is that trivial. It really is. Now, I think there's actually a couple of other things going on here. First, it is true that Isaac loved Esau's cooking and he liked the taste of wild game and all of that still holds. But if his eyesight is going dim and if he knows that his wife and his younger son are not going to agree to this transfer, then it may be the case that Isaac has started to think to himself, you know, if I don't do this while I can, while I can still see who I'm talking to, while I can still verify that I'm giving it to the one I want to, then I may lose my chance. Later in life, when the, dot, the time comes and I really am short of life and I have to give this blessing, by then I may not know who's around. So if I have Esau go out to the field and cook this stew and bring it to me, I can know for sure I'm dealing with the right son. We can do this now before anyone can stop us. And I get my way. We need to take a long, hard look at Isaac right here. Because we have lauded him, and appropriately so, for the things he's done well. But as the patriarch of this family, as the father of these boys, he is about to set in motion a series of circumstances that rip his family apart for no good reason except the prideful selfishness of a man who wants his way. What is motivating him in these circumstances? Where is this man's heart? What is he really thinking? At the end of all of this, why? The answer is because the culture says you bless the oldest. That's it. That's what's driving Isaac. The culture says that the right thing for dad to do is to make sure the oldest son receives the birthright. And to go against that culture, it was such a problem for Isaac that he would rather have gone through all that he goes through in his family to adhere to the culture. Fathers, if we allow our flesh to rule our lives like Isaac is allowing here, then we stand a pretty good chance of destroying our good work in our families in the same way that he is about to do that here. This is sin, pure and simple, and sin has consequences. Later, as we study Jacob's life, you have to remember this moment and how Isaac treated both Esau and Jacob in this family. Because at this point, you might be wondering how God is going to keep his promise to grant the birthright to Jacob in light of the fact that Isaac is about to run off with this conspiracy and award it to him outside of Jacob's hearing and outside of Rebekah's. Well, remember, the birthright is God's to grant. It's not man's. God now has added himself to the equation. He takes over the right to decide who receives his birthright. It was his promise to Abraham. It is his promise to Isaac. It will be his promise to whatever son receives it. And God is in control of that. So do you think God is going to allow Isaac's plan to succeed? Well, you know the story, don't you? Of course not. What a sad state of affairs, though. Here's a father with two sons. One is godless, one is rebellious, one is willing to cheat his brother out of the sale of the birthright that he already made. 
a son who rejects the family's lifestyle, a son that's rejected God's commandments not to take Canaanite wives. This is the son that Isaac has standing in front of him. And in contrast to him, you have the peaceful, godly man of Jacob who is living the life he's supposed to live under the care of his mother and father, the one God has selected, the one who has a heart for God, and Isaac's trying to work around his back all this while spending his energy and his time on the deceptive scheming rather than on the counseling of a good and godly son. Rebecca will lose her favorite son and never see him again for as long as she lives. Isaac will see his two boys' enemies and he will not see them reconciled again until after his death they, they meet again at his funeral. Jacob, for his part, is going to flee and have to go through 14 plus years, 21 years to be exact, of misery. Why? Because Isaac is rebelling against God. Sometimes I think we forget how long-lasting the consequences of our sin can be. And in the case of Isaac, he had no idea. Well, with that, let's go with some things to think about, some decisions to make, but along the way as well, an encouragement that God is at work in our lives and in our families and in our children, and that he has given us a promise that we can put our hope in. Heavenly Father, your word is sobering at times because it brings to us the reality of sin, the power of it in our lives. We reflect on it, Father, because if we don't, we never have a hope to confront it and deal with it in our lives. But, Father, we also look at the hope that is there in this book and in the story of Jacob. Though, Father, his, his life started with a difficult time because of his father's sin, nevertheless, you never left him. You grew him into a great man, and we will study that. Father, you are faithful even when we are faithless. You steer our hearts away from sin. You show us the truth in the Word of God. You call others to encourage us and exhort us to follow it. Your Spirit is ever present with us to convict us of sin. Father, we know that there are days when we come into this building and we hope to hear a positive, encouraging message. And there will be days when you provide that. But Father, in the way you brought me to Scripture today, you gave me a different word. I pray it was the one that you expected and the one that the hearts would receive according to your will. I also ask, Father, that in the afternoon we have ahead of us, it would be a fun and enjoyable, relaxing time. It would be safe for all those who participate. And you would be there, Father, to, to guide our hand and our, our hearts there as well. Use it to grow us physically as well as spiritually. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.